our mission was to come out and address a systemic problem in capitalism, right? Which is that the most powerful institutions in the world are driven by profit margins. And if we want to create a sustainable and equitable planet, we need to create a sustainable and equitable economy. And in order to do that, there's a lot of things that need to happen. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Avi Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs and explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Mark Orshovsky. Mark is the CEO at Moving Worlds, a social enterprise that helps companies scale their social impact programs by engaging employees in all sorts of profound new opportunities. Mark is an RSA fellow and is a lecturer on corporate social responsibility at the University of Washington Center for Leadership and Social Responsibility. Mark, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, Aviv, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. What would you add to uh, the background I offer there? Um, maybe that that in my in my free time, I like to go play outside, outdoors, skiing, hiking, camping, running, when uh, with friends, with my wife, especially being a native of Seattle and currently living in the Northwest. That connection into nature is, uh, has both inspired a lot of, I think, my my care for global issues, but I've also learned a lot about self and building an organization in the process. Let us dive right in by asking you first, of all the things you get to do in your role as a founder and a CEO, what do you enjoy most? You know, I think, I think for me, it's, it's learning, right? For as long as I can remember learning is something that's always been interesting to me, right? Even when I was not a good learner, right? Even when I wasn't the best student, even if I was struggling to pick up a new sport, um, I think just the aspect of using my brain, connecting with really, really interesting people in a continuously evolving both business environment and social impact environment and getting to observe and hear and do in new ways, that always gives me energy. There's, at least for me, whether it's a new book, a, a research study, a, a conversation, just being able to keep asking why and learning and trying new things so that I can really internalize it, you know, in, in my role of building an organization, of building a team, of working on problems that uh, are still pervasive, there is a lot of learning that has to happen. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to be one of those people that is just naturally geared towards learning. Uh, so I'd say that's probably, that's the piece every, every day that even if it's a task or a project that I'm not so excited about, there's always an element of learning that gives me a lot of energy to keep going. What have you learned about how you learn best? Are you, uh, I'm guessing you're a conversationalist learner, but if I said, are you a reader learner, mm. a contemplative learner, a conversationalist learner, or a kinetic learner, yeah. which of those or any other are you? Yeah, good, great, great question. You know, I'm reminded of the quote, right? And I'll probably get it wrong, but um, no, tell me and I'll forget, right? Show me and I'll remember, let me do it, and I will. No, I've I've totally ruined this quote. No, no. <laughs> hey, let's just make it right. Let me do it, and I become the embodied example of its performance. There you go. That's exactly it, right? <laughs> so I, I think it's like at the end of the day, it's like 
okay, if, if I read about it or if I hear it, oh, that's interesting, it'll go away. If I can talk about it with others, okay, then I start to internalize it. But when I actually get to do, right, and I think in my role as a leader of an organization, doing is often also helping others do that as well, right? So whether that's coaching or training. And, and so for me, it's kind of that journey, right, is we read, we hear, we see a lot. And then on some of these items, I'll, I'll double click into those. And then I go to conversation, right? I talk about it with peers, my wife, a, a friend, but then I do, right? Then, then I get to do it. And that's, that's and, the piece where, yeah. And the full ownership, the, full, the fuller commitment of learning is when we teach it to others and evangelize whatever, whether it's a practice, it's a way of solving problems, it's a way of instantiating how to grapple with issues, whatever it is, it's in the teaching it to everybody else in our ecosystem that we truly take fuller ownership of the learning. Yep, yeah, to, to teach us to learn twice, right? Exactly. Well, so let me ask you, what was the core insight that catalyzed moving worlds? And then as you described the core insight, actually explain what what moving worlds is but i'm i'm interested in the story the arc sure. of you coming up with an idea and then you embarking on the exciting and challenging journey of bringing an idea into life yeah no it's you know as i reflect back and if i think about you know what it takes to to found and then build and grow an organization right there's there's an element of of personal readiness and commitment that needs to happen, right? So I think part of the insight for me is, okay, what led me to that moment to embark on that? And then there's the other insight, which is where's the market opportunity, right? And is there something that can actually go to market, deliver real value, right? And create revenue. And then there's the insight about scale, right? Can this something that has worked a time or two get picked up and can you both expand a customer base and your operations in it in an effective way? So start with the personal, you know, for me, um, I think like many things, a lot of our opportunity, right. Is, is a matter of fortune or misfortune based on where you're born, where you're raised and who you're raised by. Um, you know, in some ways I was, I was extremely fortunate, right? I had two parents that stayed together and despite some really scary health events, you know, namely both of them had cancer within a really, really short time frame of each other. You know, we all made it through, right? And they made it through, they're still healthy. And I came from a home that had a lot of love and, and that I think was a big part of creating just a safe place where I could experiment in the world, right? And I, I think I recognize that, right? That I came from this really fortunate place emotionally. Now, financially, we, okay, compared to 99% of the world, right? I was living in America and so I, I was in a good spot, but both my parents immigrated over from Eastern Europe. My dad from Poland with $5 in his pocket, my mom is a refugee from Yugoslavia, resettled via a refugee camp. Um, and so financially, we had a different story, right? And so, but even during those times, we came from a place that was connected into a Slavic community in Seattle. And both my parents were very giving of that to community, not financially, but with time. And, and so I think that sense of community, that sense of responsibility, and then emotionally having a safe place where I could really experiment in the world you know, that, that got me to kind of step up in a lot of places, I think, where maybe other, others weren't or, or couldn't. And, and then I think the piece that really kind of then tipped me over and said, okay, you're a, a capable person who is able to, you know, succeed professionally earlier in my career. The piece that I think really tipped me was I had started my career actually in, in accounting. So both undergrad and master's degree in accounting, I started at PwC. I survived one busy season 
and was just like, this, this is not for me, you know, at the same time that I was, you know, working countless hours in, in auditing, I was also volunteering really extensively with the American Cancer Society. And I found that I was, I was successful at work. I was good at collaborating. I was good at problem solving. I was good at operating in ambiguity because I had all this experience as a volunteer. But then my work experience actually really restricted my ability to continue volunteering. And, and so that was another moment of insight for me, right? Which was to say, I got all this learning by being engaged in community and social causes, right? I built my network, I built skills. And now that I was working professionally and the company was, was benefiting from me and having all this experience, you know, the American Cancer Society trained me how to communicate effectively, how to mobilize, how to manage against timelines. And then here I was at a, you know, at a huge accounting company with much more resources and I couldn't stay engaged socially and on social causes because of the time commitment. And, and so that was a moment for me that just felt not core to who I was as a person, right? I wanted to stay engaged in community. You were experiencing in the most personal, most visceral way, the disconnect, in right. the, the global disconnect in terms of where resources are and where there are needs and you were experiencing that disconnect, this discordance inside. Yep, that's very well reflected back and it resonates a lot, right? And so I, from there, I ended up at a, a small healthcare marketing company actually to help them with accounting and they serve nonprofits and hospitals and medical device companies. And I had this really great opportunity to transition from doing accounting work to doing analysis on the effectiveness of digital marketing campaigns, right? And this is 2007, 2008, early social media, early pay-per-click, early SEO. And a lot of the skills I had were very useful there, even as an accountant. But again, combined with that volunteer experience, right? I understood how to translate messages to a very big audience. And so, you know, we, the Great Recession hits, right? We, we made it through, right? We actually ended up creating a new digital strategy firm, uh, actually a separate legal entity wholly owned by the other, but specialized in digital strategy for healthcare brands. And we make it through the Great Recession. I missed a couple of paychecks during that time, but our team didn't, right? We were able to keep the whole team together and through. And, and when we came out, the, the owner of the, of the organization, you know, and and I can understand his perspective, but he said, I want you to develop a product and sell as quickly as you can. I'm not going through this again. I want to retire. And, and I understood that perspective, but that's not the contract that I signed up for, right? I, I signed up to deliver value to help address healthcare issues. And, and I think that for me was, was kind of that last piece of insight that personally I really needed to step out, right? Which is to say, I have the background in the foundation, right? I have the skills, but now there was a misalignment with what I was trying to build and where I could find that in another setting. So that led to me being personally ready. And, and I actually then did a lot of research. I love learning, right? So I did a lot of research and learned about this idea of a social business or a benefit corporation, a social enterprise. This was just you know, Muhammad Yunus wrote a book about this in, in 2007, right? And, and so I was, I was fascinated with that type of business model because I was very immersed in nonprofit through a volunteer. I was very immersed in corporate as an accountant. This was in the middle. So I spent a year to just travel and volunteer with social enterprises around the world. And, you know, to the next insight, right? Which was like, where was there a market opportunity? Let's just say with this insight, you are deciding to give yourself the permission to travel for a year, yeah. be exposed to different circumstances as you are in the back of your mind working about and on, what is it you are going to do? What, what, what are some of the, the most uh, important impressions through this uh, year of travel? You know, I learned, this is going to sound cliche, right? I, I learned a lot about myself, right? As, as you tend to do, right? But I think, you know, what I did is I actually kind of created some like hypotheses, 
right? Of what I want in the future, right? And one of them was, and I love travel. I mean, that was a huge part of, of who I was, right? I think still a part of who I am. But, you know, you have dreams of like, I'm going to travel the world full time and, and be a travel blogger, this or that, right? But I went in with the hypothesis that travel in and of itself would not be fulfilling, right? And the meeting people part of it would not be fulfilling. The, the seeing new places would not be fulfilling. I might learn about myself, but that was not my future per se. And so I think one of those kind of big ahas was, and there's actually, there's an Yvonne Chouinard quote, who's the, the founder of Patagonia, right? That I remember reading about at a similar time that I was like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say, right? And he said, you know, if you're an asshole and you climb up a mountain and you take a picture at the top, when you come back down, you're still an asshole, right? And I think you can travel, but if you don't do that real inward introspection of what are my values, right? What is my compass when I hit any situation, right? What does the world need? And then what are my skill sets and how can I contribute? The value isn't there. And I, and I think it was kind of like an anti-hypothesis to go into it with. But I, I really saw and I experienced that, right? So I think I came out of that experience with this desire to say, like, Seattle is actually my home, right? Mary, who's now my wife, is the person that I want, you know, to be with for my life. And the problems that I want to work on are the larger systemic problems that people tend to shy away from. And because of size, because of economic viability, so I, I learned kind of a lot of also some of the things I didn't want, which helped me then focus on the things that I really did. I think that was probably my biggest discovery. So I'm, I'm now becoming very interested in the next piece, which is how do you narrow and, and how do you define clearly what is the problem you're about to go to try to solve and how you approach that journey? Yeah. You know, when I started this experience, I, was, I started to work on a business plan for day one of what I would do when I got back. And the, the name, you know, I still have the, the PowerPoint, you know, kind of file, right, of where I was scratching my first business plan. And it was, it was a center for social enterprise development and empowerment, right? That was, that's what I wanted to come back and build. And as I was embarking on this experience, as I was volunteering, as I was interviewing social enterprises and impact investors for my blog and just for my own edification and learning, I was taking notes and thinking about how could I build some center to help Seattle create a social enterprise hub. And as I embarked, my research question was, what makes social enterprises communities flourish? And so that's what I started with. And I knew when I came back, I would probably start something like that. Now, when I was in Argentina, this was the last step, my last stop on this, this uh, global experience. And I ended up meeting a, a gentleman, his name is Derek, and he's Dutch, had been living in, in Argentina, had started an impact investing organization in Europe, had expanded it across Latin America. And we met at a social enterprise meetup event. You know, this is um, this is late 2011, and he was really intrigued by my experience. And we had a great conversation. We met for coffee the next day, and then the day after that, the day after that. And you know, finally, he said, "You know, look, I I know you're returning back home soon, but it just sounds like there's a business opportunity here." right? Which is you have this global network of professionals that are not engaged at work. They're looking on how to make a bigger impact in their careers and in the world. They want to travel. You did this. You have a blog. People were asking you for advice and help and you were doing it for free. It seems like there's a business here, right? And then he said, and look, and I'm kind of looking for my next challenge. And so anyway, we kicked it around. It it was his idea to start Moving Worlds. We met up consistently and then we finally said, let's validate this. And he goes, okay, good, because I already bought a domain name, right? He came up with the name. And, uh, and I think what, what we saw was there was a high aspirational 
vision that people had of themselves to go do good in the world. So at that stage, what are you defining as the value proposition or the, the essence of the business at this early stage before you actually engage in any practical next step? Yeah, for us, it was, you know, for mid-career professionals that want their jobs and careers to mean something, right? Moving Worlds creates a place for you to embark on your own discovery and to go volunteer with a social enterprise around the world that will give you free room and board in exchange for your time and expertise. And so that was our first prototype, right? Our Google Doc, our balsamic mock-up, an unbounced page eventually. That was what we launched with. And professionals paid us money for help finding a project that would cover their room and board in exchange for their skills and for guidance and clarity on how to do that safely and, and generatively. So there was an element of, of coaching or mentoring or consulting inside that? Good question. More almost like trading and, and guidance, right? Like, hey, you're going to go travel to this part of the world. Here are the 10 things that you need to do. Now, to your point, though, as we listened to our users, they were asking for coaching. They were asking for mentorship. They were asking for more specific professional development. And this was one of the breakthrough moments at Moving Worlds, right? When we realized that if you ask people and did research on how much money people have spent trying to volunteer, right? Their budgets are zero, right? They, you don't have money to volunteer. But if you ask people what their budgets are for continuing in professional education, right? Now you're getting into very high, very high value budgeted for needs that people have. And so in 2015, we launched the Moving Worlds Institute. There was some other work that happened first with corporates and others that enabled us to get to this stage. But we launched the Moving Worlds Institute that actually provided what you just said, like coaching, mentoring, training, and more, more focused professional development. So take me now through um, more concretely some of the steps in the evolution of Moving Worlds to um, what it actually does today. And then we'll reflect back once again and ask, well, what, what were the challenges and the learning along the journey? But ground me now in the actuality uh, with all the, the praise and the success of what you've accomplished. Sure. So maybe I'll start really quickly if I can, because I'll probably confuse maybe you and, and the listeners just a little bit on this journey, right? Because I think our mission was to come out and address a systemic problem in capitalism, right? Which is that the most powerful institutions in the world are driven by profit margins. And if we want to create a sustainable and equitable planet, we need to create a sustainable and equitable economy. And in order to do that, there's a lot of things that need to happen, right? But one of the critical things, absolutely, is that businesses, each measure and account for their social and environmental factors, right? Let's just slow this one down and, and stay with this. Sure. Because there are two premises you just established. Yeah. One, if we're going to uh, survive as a civilization, there has to be a way to build a sustained and equitable economy. Some people would even need to make a leap to join you there before the, the, the next leap. So what would you say just to ground that first premise? Yep. Well, there's, there's a lot to be said around that topic. Because you're saying both sustainable yep. and people can make that leap yep. in a capitalist-driven society in America. When you say equitable, some people would need to, the dictionary and others would argue with the interpretation of sure. what the dictionary would offer. What's your definition of equitable in the context, in the way you frame it? Yep. So... There's a lot, a lot that goes into it, right? If, if you look at the United Nations, they'll give you 169 different development targets that, you know, would get to sustainability and, and equity. That's 169 targets. Of course, no one memorizes them all. I think for me, it's the sustainable plant part. I just think about planetary health, right? Um, 
can we continue to sustain a planet and keep climate change within check, right? That's the sustainable. The equitable part of me, I really see two main chunks there, the individual and the societal level, right? Um, Democracy is far from perfect, but without democracy, right? Well, there's the, is it the, the Alexis de Tocqueville quote, right? Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. It becomes, we are now, as we recall this, we're in a phase in human history where this statement is being more challenged than any other time before. Because we are seeing the dysfunction and the breakdown of democratic systems in their ability to address complex challenges, which probably makes your point even louder and more pronounced and more important. Because you are about to describe to us mechanisms from the ground up to build sustainable and equitable drivers. So so please. Yeah. So I I think on the the kind of the social equity side, right, I think about the role of institutions being able to help uphold democracy. Um, And that means people having voices as to where money goes, including their tax the taxes that they pay. So that's the, the societal level of it. And then there's the individual, right? Which is where I, as an individual, regardless of my skin color, my race, my religion, my accent, my language, that I still have opportunities. And the gap between our most well-paid and least well-paid people is kept within reason. Beautiful. So you just established the first premise about the need for, if we don't, we're not going to blow up this planet, we've got to find a way to build a sustainable and equitable economy. And your second follow-up premise was? The uh, yeah. And so, the, yeah, the second premise then is in order for that economy to be in place, the actual entities within it must then therefore be sustainable and equitable, right? meaning that the negative externalities of their business, whether it's pay in equity or carbon emissions, are being tightly managed and controlled. And they themselves are actually doing things that are moving us towards more equitable treatment of employees and more sustainable operations. Beautiful. So you you are able to clearly frame that objective in your mind when? Is it this is 2015 or earlier? Yeah, so this was earlier, right, where we set out to say these enterprises are showing that there is a way to create profitable businesses that are world positive, right, that address those social and and environmental issues. And we want to support them, right? So that's that's where we were 10 years ago, right? Where we are now is we're saying that we're saying the same thing, right? But the way that we're supporting those organizations is at a much, much higher volume of scale. And along the way, you know, we kind of got pulled this way and that way based on revenues and partnership opportunities. And so what we do now is in order to help these social businesses or social enterprises grow, become profitable, and plug into international supply chains. Let me just hold you there again. For people that are not fully in the loop. When you talk about social businesses and social enterprises, give us few, a few more for instances. We can wrap our minds around that. Yep. Like actual like examples of potential organizations. Please. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Cool. So for us, the and there are very specific criteria that kind of go into, okay, is something a social enterprise? So I'll start with the theory and then I'll go into examples, right? So the first part of theory is that When the business forms, when it writes its articles of incorporation, its social and environmental mission is encapsulated within its articles of incorporation. So it legally exists not only to maximize shareholder wealth, but to also deliver some type of net positive value to people and to planet. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is it's then operated in a way based on board strategy, executive strategy, and compensation that 
means that in all decisions, it's continuing to consider the social and environmental outputs of its work and prioritizing those alongside profits. The third piece of that is the inside is as good as the outside, right? So you can develop a world positive product, but if you treat all your employees terribly and are propagating payment inequality and just spewing carbon emissions out, even if you're developing a great product, it's debatable if you're net positive, right? So your internal kind of operations that are also being being tightly managed. So, um, and there, there are there are more factors. If you take the benefit corporation impact assessment, it will give you these different categories, and you can assess your your business, even if you're a for profit business, on these entities. And social businesses and enterprises look to be audited to these uh, vectors to be validated as such. Well, good question. Nobody likes to get audited because it's expensive and timely, right? Coming from a former auditor. But what that stamp does when you go through the audit, right, is it it verifies you to the world at large, right? That you're not just saying these things, you actually are these things. Yeah. So I think social enterprises do it because it's the right thing to do, right? So, and, and you were in the arc of explaining and moving from theory to concrete, concrete examples, but still there... So what's the difference between those and the large Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 companies where they have a social and environmental responsibility program, more developed, less developed, more integrated to core or more lip service? Just give me some of the the grounding in, in how you look at that. Yeah. So... There are different levels of maturity in a corporation's corporate social responsibility and environmental and social governance, ESG practices. I think what you said is kind of a great, it's either lip service, right? I'm doing it for PR purposes, right? Or I'm fundamentally changing my business to be future-proof, right? Um, And so this is Unilever, right? Who's saying, we cannot continue to operate and produce the things that we produce unless we actually can make regenerative agricultural work, right? So we are making our entire supply chain regenerative. Otherwise, we don't have a business in the future, right? So that's integrated into its core business. Driven by an epiphany, a moment of realization all the way at the top and communicated in that way, deep down to every employee in the organization. Yep. Unilever is a great example of that, right? Now, the other one is the the publicity stunt, right? The PR, right? Um, I'm in Seattle. I can pick on Amazon here, right? You know, Amazon has their climate pledge, right? They're now saying they're some of the biggest purchasers of renewable energy, These are notable accomplishments, right? But in the scheme of its total carbon footprint, it is far from notable. They have not made future proof of uh, planetary survival and sustainability a core strategic imperative of their business model. They have not made that leap yet. That's right. Right. So we, we hope they'll get there. Right. I know there's a lot of people working inside really, really hard in order to make that happen. Right. But but they're not there yet. Right. I think, you know, Apple is a good example of this. Right. Under Steve Jobs, it was it was the product. We are making the best possible products that we can. Right. The iPhone, the, the lap, the Macintosh, the, the, the PowerBook, whatever it's called. Right. Their laptop um, under Tim Cook, you saw you've seen a step change, right? His compensation is now tied to their environmental targets, right? It's a fundamentally different level of seriousness that's being given towards environmental and social good priorities. So you're seeing a whole scale. You would not say that Apple has made the leap to where Unilever is, but companies are somewhere on a continuum of discovery and a practical strategic response that they follow through with in the way they shape their business. That's right. Yeah. And as these businesses make these changes, right, as Unilever goes to regenerative, right, um, 
when they, they have to then buy materials from other businesses, right? Unilever has over 50,000 different suppliers that plug into its supply chain, right? Those businesses, many of them are small, right? Many of them are growing. Some of them are very, very large, but many are small. And what we do is help those smaller organizations that feed into these bigger enterprises, right? Um, scale up their operations and bring that type of social enterprise thinking into these bigger supply chains, right? And we do that both by direct support to the social enterprises, training, education, connection building, connecting them to skills-based volunteers. We also do it to the company, right? We educate the the employees. We connect them to these different types of suppliers around the world. Oftentimes in partnership with HR, we structure leadership development opportunities for employees to learn about this stuff and then go volunteer directly with these enterprises, helping them build capacity, get to the next level of operations, and then actually start this kind of flywheel of support with the organizations. So with that now, give me please um, a few exotic examples that you are at liberty to, to discuss, sure. just to get the feel of the, the global footprint and experiences that you and your team get involved in. Sure. So we've had a, a partnership for over five years with Microsoft. And they operate a program, it's called MySkills, where they sponsor startups to access skills-based volunteers from across the company. Pre-COVID, people would actually travel for this. During COVID, it's all been virtual. So, um, you know, one of the enterprises that has received some support is called um, Mawingu. So Mawingu, picture a container ship with solar panels on top that can get dropped into increasingly remote areas, right? And when they open the door, right, they create a Wi-Fi network that can support, you know, entire rural communities, right? Um, so Microsoft, of course, has a vested interest in having more people connected. And so as Mawingu was, was growing, right? They and they are based where? So uh, they operate in sub-Saharan Africa. And so as they were growing... They were looking for support, right? They were moving huge workflows to the cloud. They had major questions about, you know, which hubs are being the most effective, energy usage, Wi-Fi connectivity, latency issues. And so, you know, where do you access a network of professionals that actually have done it at this level of scale, right? Connecting millions of devices, right, to a network at one point in time. And you could do that for Microsoft. So Microsoft employees were actually there and volunteering. And whether it was leading data intelligence integrations and workshops, whether it was supporting sales teams in the field, whether it was actually mentoring and training some of the engineers to move more workflows up into the cloud. Um, this is an example of this really cool social enterprise, right? But receiving support from the company, right? And then what then the company learns in the process too is, a much better understanding of the local ecosystem and the realization that if they want to have the Microsoft suite of products adopted on the continent, the way they do that in Europe won't work, right? The way they do in the US won't work, right? But they could do it by engaging a huge partner network, right? And Microsoft does have experience with that, but then they were able to use these experiences and insights to better support other small businesses with similar training skills, so, you know, that's, that's on, the, on the technology side of things. Um, there's another social enterprise. Um, it's called Seabin. It's a floating trash can, right? It literally floats in a harbor and has a kind of bobbing device. And so it cleans, water essentially funnels through with it. And in it, it cleans up plastic, microplastics. Um, and so they were looking for support, right? To just say, we're trying to figure out how do we bring this to market? Right? And so they actually connected into, into our professional network where someone was able to go and help them figure out a commercialization and, and strategic plan for growth. In these examples, how do they know to find you? Yeah, good question. You know, our network from social impact organizations has been word of mouth, organic, and through impact investors, right? If you meet a social enterprise, you've met somebody that's looking for money. 
And so a lot of these people with money say, hey, we've given you money. Now go be more effective, partner with moving worlds, right? Or you're not quite ready for money yet, but now there is support for you, right? Where before there wasn't, you can go to moving worlds and you can access expertise that can maybe help you get to the next level. So two questions here and see how you want to respond. So through this journey, what were the the biggest challenges for you? I'll actually stay with this question and, and then I'll move to uh, to the other question. What were the the big challenges and the learning through these challenges? Yeah. You know, I was just reflecting on this with, with somebody the other day where for when your goal is systems change, right? I, we're not trying to change the behavior of like a consumer, right? We're not introducing a new category, right? We're fundamentally working on one system. Right? And I remember the question that I kept getting time and time again from when we were raising, when we raised money in in 2014. And since then, right, people are like, but who is your customer? You can, and and they're like, no, 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 you can only have one customer. And the more experienced business professional you spoke with, right, the more they would push on that. But you can only have one customer. At your size, you can only have one customer. And it was something that I always struggled with because we didn't, right? We have four right? We have people that want to give their skills. We have social enterprises that want to upskill. We have corporate partners that want to partner with this sector and engage their employees. And then we have impact investors that want to help their social enterprises scale. And developing a solution that actually appeals to all of those parties and can be operationally efficient, right, continues to be, I think, our biggest challenge. Right. And I feel like we're, you know, when the biggest problems of our time are systemic, right, and systems based, the, our mode of entrepreneurship of saying like, oh, I'm going to change the world if I just get consumers to buy differently, right, or get enterprises to use their data differently, right, that won't change the world. It'll streamline one workflow, but to address the system, it is therefore comprised of many stakeholders. And so you have to develop a product that really appeals and builds active engagement. And the best uh, identifier of that is that you can generate revenue from each of those stakeholders, right? And you are generating generating revenue from all four stakeholders. Yep. And it's hard. Yeah. So what are we learning? What are you learning about through this about systemic change other than obviously the statement it's hard it's hard (laughs) because it's because the large systemic change you're trying to drive is entrenched in even a bigger meta system the way we think the way we believe the world operates what we understand about the economy and geopolitics the entire the full enchilada you're saying, no, I'm going to come and find a way to drive some systemic change. What is the learning about yeah, yeah. systemic change other than saying it's difficult? Yep. I think one learning you are beginning to articulate is, I will decipher it this way. If you are going to be successful, you are going to have to find a way to drive aligned behavior of multiple stakeholders such that they each see that it's in their best interest to collaborate. That is what is difficult. That's what I'm hearing through your story. Yep. And I would change one of those phrases, right? Which is, it's not to help people see the value that's in their best interest. But I think as the entrepreneur trying to get the adoption, you have to deliver value, right? So that the need for it no longer becomes a question, right? So it's, it, what I would flip there is it's not their responsibility to recognize it. It's our responsibility as the entrepreneur to deliver it, right? And I think that in terms of, you use the word behavior, right? And I think that's it, is the hardest part about all of this is at the end of the day, you're just working with humans, right? And humans are, are beautiful and inspiring and engaging and generative, right? We're all these, we're all these wonderful things, but we're all very different. We all have our own priorities. And so I think it's, it, 
what I'm learning is even as you're working on these systems issues, right, you're working with humans, right? And you have to understand each of these critical humans that represent different stakeholder groups and get to understand them and what they're trying to achieve so that you can then deliver value to them, right? And then from there, then you can really create partnerships. And there's this wonderful researcher. She speaks to our community. Her name is Janeway Skiller. And and she popularized this concept of, of network leadership, right? Where in systems change, the foundation of actually this is building trust, right? Acting as nodes, right? Not a hub. Um, collecting around... Explain that acting as nodes, not as hub. Explain that. Uh, yeah. So if Moving Worlds was operating as like a hub, right? We'd say, hey... Professional, if you want to engage, you have to engage with me, right? And social enterprise, you engage with me. And corporate, you engage with me. And impact investor, you engage with me, right? That would be us as a hub. A node would say, we're actually all nodes in a system. And so if it makes the most sense for corporation and social enterprise to connect directly, we need to make that very easy for them, right? So they don't need to funnel, all exchanges don't need to happen through, you know, one hub, right? You can. It's almost more like, you know, blockchain versus versus centralized. So there is an element there in the mental model that that's not uh, egoic, not uh, centralizing in nature, and is servant of the system. In other words, if you are saying, I'm going to change, I'm going to work hard to change the system, part of that is you take a lunar rather than a solar stance, you're servant of the system rather than looking for the system to serve you. Yeah. If you do serve the system well, the system will take care of you as well because you become mission critical for its success. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, servant of the system, right? I think that that resonates in all kinds of ways, right? And and I think that's one of the important pieces, right? Is to say what's most important here is that the system evolves, right? Not that not that moving worlds does, but to your point, if we add value into the system and to all the stakeholders within it, then is then the system's success is ensured, and then and then therefore so is ours. Okay, so now I'm going to ask, uh, explore an esoteric dimension here. Sure. So clearly articulating this within the framework of a capitalist system, when you say it is upon us to prove that we, we create value, we have to be value creators. To what degree is it necessary or not at all that the people involved are making their own, whatever way you choose to describe it, interior, personal development, bring into it sense of enlightenment or a do good in the world or, or even a spiritual dimension? Does it play a part in it or not at all. Give me a commentary on that, on the the interior of the belief systems of the people that get involved in participating in system change. How critical and important is that element or not at all? Yeah. No, I I think it's hugely important, right? I'll I'll give another example from, from our Microsoft program where one of the volunteers, right? His name's Ricardo. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. Volunteered his skill sets to support a project. He went to Kenya. And, you know, while he was there, he noticed that some of the artificial intelligence technology that Microsoft was building, um, it was great at doing facial recognition on, on white men, Right. And it was terrible at doing facial recognition on black men and black women. And when he came back to Microsoft, he said, if I'm selling this stuff, if I'm building some of our biggest commercial partnerships, right, we need to address this. In fact, I would like to be on the team that helps address this, right? And so he got involved with accessibility issues, right? And, you know, we now see Microsoft speak about accessibility a lot. Right. It's a huge part of their commercial partnerships, their governmental contracts, their employment contract. So I think this anecdote contains the next uh, profound insight, game-changing insight. If I need to say it back to you, I will say 
right to drive large scale systemic change. We need key people, individuals within the systems, nodes within the system that are able to demonstrate and apply truly the sense of how their consciousness, their state of mind, their set of values, their personal transformation, because it is the, the behavior and the mindset of individuals that catalyze the change of the system around them. That's how I would decipher that yep. insight. Yep. Yeah. Like no, you know, no one ever, you know, was, has kind of just been this very self-absorbed, self-centered person, you know, saw one advertisement from moving worlds and then decided to go give their time and skills, right? The system doesn't have its own self-authored consciousness. That's right. right? It is made of individuals. Are on a journey. Ricardo was on a journey of learning, of growth, of exploration, and we were there at the right time and he was then able to utilize that. So yeah, I think your question of, do humans, do the people within it need to kind of be at this place or thinking about these things or exploring their own, both gifts that they can give to the world and to society, but also the costs that they're imposing on society. I think that exploration gives people the nudge, if you will, to, to do something about it. So we went on this entire tangent because you were describing the theory and yeah. then you're going to, to ground it and you did ground it in the actuality, but is there any other piece that you want to complete? Yeah. You know, I think one of the pieces I was kind of getting at, you know, to, to kind of go back to, you know, that's where we are now, right? We, we work and provide value to this, the stakeholder system, but when we launched, we had to provide value to one audience. Right. And, and so we started as a, as a platform where people could, just find volunteering projects, right? And then we listened to those users and they said, I want to develop my career as I embark on this, right? And then corporates like Microsoft came to us and said, we want programs like this because we're working on market development or corporate social responsibility. So we started to do those things and we built an institute. And then these social business leaders started coming to us and saying, I want to connect with these companies I want to participate in this institute. So then we, we built a program then just for those social enterprises to help them do that. And these different programs for social enterprises, for corporates, for individuals, they're all on our back end, they're all intertwined, right? Because social enterprises come in, they get promoted to the corporations, employees from these corporations then get to go volunteer and support them. Um, the employees then can learn, right? They can engage in learning and community and workshops. And so I think as we've kind of gone here, it's, it's, I think that's a, a big part of what our journey has been is figuring out how do you keep adding on value to these very disparate stakeholders, but in a way that also creates value to the rest of the system. So you are one of those rare occasions where the field of dreams brief did actually work. You build it and they will come. No, no, we didn't. We built it and nobody came. That was the start. <laughs> I think, I think we, we built it and nobody came, but we were lucky enough that some people stumbled across it. And as they were stumbling across it, they gave us ideas. And they said, you know, if you did this differently, if you did this differently. And so then we built, we took their ideas, right? We, we slowly then created something that, that people did want. Yeah. What would you say, Mark, are the, the deep... Uh insights or learning for you from this journey about human nature? You know, I like learning, right? So there we go. I read a book this year. I, I'm reading constantly about one of my favorite books this past year was how culture develops in animals, um, which is a whole other, I guess, podcast episode. But one of the books that I came upon was called Human Kind by Rutger. Human, human Kind. By Rutger uh, Berman. Um, he's a Dutch historian. And I think culturally, socially, societally, there is a narrative that humans tend to um, create problems, right? They look out for themselves. They don't look out for others. Um, they're operating in their own self-interest. 
And there's all these experiments over time, right? There's Lord of the Flies, which says if you leave, you know, boys on an island by themselves, they're going to go into clans and fight each other. And um, there's the Stanford prison experiment, right? If you've heard about this, right? Where by just saying, hey, you're a prisoner and you're a guard, over time, the guards will actually become violent towards there's all these, ex- or the, the shock experiment, if you've heard of this one, right, where they put a subject um, in a room and they, they bring in somebody and they have to turn up the dial for the shocks, right? And they put pressure on this person to like, the experiment must continue and they have to keep shocking the stranger in another room. And this book goes through all of these different scenarios, right? And it actually shows that those experiments were fundamentally flawed. The Stanford professor behind the prison experiment was, and his notes show this, was egging the guards on to be violent, right? Um, The interview notes from the guards themselves were like, yeah, we knew this was a joke. We were playing along. Like, this was like, we were having fun with this whole thing. Other people quit. They were like, this is stupid. I'm not wasting my time here. Similarly with the shock experiment, right? And in fact, there's a real world story that Rutger finds where there were a group of boys that ended up on an island and they were discovered years later and they were all supporting each other, including when one of the people, one of the, the kids uh, fell and, and broke his leg. And I read this book to just say, wow, there's this whole narrative that we have that people will default to very self-centered. To the barbaric animalistic side and the evidence of life is different toddlers when you leave them unto themselves they actually like to play together they like to share they you need to train these instincts of being fair and and wanting to share and wanting to care you need to train these instincts out of the toddler rather than teach them how to do this that's right yeah so i think you know to your question about human behavior, I mean, I think that's it, right? Is that, okay, you know, politically we can't agree and there's the right versus the left, the populist versus the globalist. There's, you know, there's all this. And but fundamentally the humans within this all are actually looking out for their community. They, they do want what's best for each other. And there is a line, right? The level of self sacrifice or loss that people are willing to encounter does change by individual for sure. But from the human behavior side, I think my, my stance, especially seeing the work that we do is that the the vast majority of humans are caring, supportive, and want what's best for themselves and others. And it's really only a couple percent that are kind of go into that like sociopath kind of category. So that for me, that's, especially over the last year, that recognition. Beautiful. What um, does it mean for you to be an RSA fellow? The the RSA stands for, I believe, the Royal Society of Arts Manufacturers and Commerce. The the RSA fellowship started hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's it's a UK-based organization that has now a global community of, of fellows that nominated and then go through application process. But the core idea is to create a place where there is an exchange of ideas beyond work, right? So if I speak on a webinar with the other fellows, I'm not talking about moving worlds. I'm talking about how do you create nodes, you know, to influence systems change, right? We're connected with an environmentalist and um, and a biologist and a tech entrepreneur, whoever it might be. So yeah, it's a global organization that tries to foster a more behind-the-scenes conversation on what it takes to, to build and, and stand for ideas that move society forward. Awesome. Where do you hope to be with this endeavor 10 years from now? Oh, man, the 10 years in the future question. You know, in, in many ways, I'll go back 10 years ago, right? The things that social enterprises struggle with, right, is a lack of access to capital, for sure, but a lack of access to talent, to know-how and connections. And this, to me, is a very consistent challenge, right, that we won't solve that in 10 years. So 
in some ways, very simply in 10 years, I see moving worlds as an organization, just getting better at, at tackling that, right? More partnerships, more private and public sector partnerships, including with governments. Um, now, me as the individual, you know, in that, um, so many different ways that, that that could go. I know for now, you know, we are, for our, our business, right? COVID really could have, could have sunk us, right? And, and there was one week where there was a quarter million of revenue that, that dried up, paused, disappeared. And it was during that time where we said, let's focus on our mission. If there was ever a time to focus on social enterprises, this is now. And let's do right by that audience. And if we can prove value, then we will be a part of that system and the system will take care of us. And we had more robust hypotheses here as well in terms of where revenue sources could come from. But we doubled down, it paid off. We are now building partnerships with multiple, you know, Fortune 50 companies that are coming together on one platform combined with some other intergovernmental organizations to make a more focused, easier to access support network for social enterprises. And so a lot of ways that that could grow in 10 years, but I know for now, I'm, I'm very, very energized about what's, what's in front of us. So I know what Moving Worlds will do in 10 years, just supporting social enterprises. Uh, my role in it, I guess we'll find out. A closing question there. What would be your parting message to um, somebody 23, 25, 26 years of age who perhaps is in a similar vein in their inquiry to where you were, but it's a different time. The world is even more confusing and to many bewildering, and they want to make a difference. They want to embrace the truly large-scale systemic challenges. What, what would you say to them? Good question. Can I say three things? Can I? <laughs> Absolutely, please. I'll put it into the same lens that I kind of saw myself, right? Which was, you know, getting yourself ready, like finding a, a market, right? And then scaling it. And I think in terms of getting yourself ready, one of my other favorite quotes is that humans do not learn from the lessons of history. That is the most important lesson of history. And all the advice on how to be a good entrepreneur, how to be a good leader, how to find product market fit, how to be mindful and take care of your own health, that all exists and it exists in droves. And if you're setting out on your to go build something, to tackle a system challenge, the lessons of history will show you that it is hard. Um, it's lonely. You'll have to make sacrifices. It'll probably require more effort and take more time. Um, but the tools exist to cope with all of those, right? So don't go into it thinking that you're going to be totally different, right? That you won't make all these same mistakes, that you won't also suffer from imposter syndrome or whatever it might be. You will, and that's okay, and you're not alone. So go into that knowing you will experience those things and use the wealth of resources around you to just combat those better than, than I did, right? Or, or, you know, and I probably combated it better than the generation before me. So that's the internal ready. On the finding product market fit, you know, we support social enterprises with this all the time, right? And social enterprises and just entrepreneurs in general, right? Um, you know, we're, we worked hard, but there's an element of luck to our success too, right? We raise money from investors. We are returning money to investors. We are growing on revenue. We're building our team. Um, but when I think and I talk to entrepreneurs, there's such an obsession with raising money, raising grant capital, right? Um, raising an angel investment round. And trying to just share your idea to the world, right? And that is such a hard and discouraging path, right? And 90% of organizations won't make it, won't get, won't get funding. So stack the odds in your favor, right? It's actually a whole lot easier to find customers than it is to find investors. And once you have customers, it actually becomes a lot easier to find 
So create very lean, cheap experiments, follow the lean startup model, but get out there and talk to your potential customers, deliver value and earn revenue. The rest can kind of follow suit. And from the scale perspective, you can't scale without a good team. And, you know, with my work with the American Cancer Society, I had all this training on leadership development. I started at PwC. I had all this training about management and operations. And, And some people told me, like, you're a great manager, right? Like, as we went through. And I always thought that I was, like, a good manager, right? I knew I wasn't the best. It's still not my favorite activity, right? My whole team kind of knows this, right? It's not my natural inclination. Um, But I always thought I was good enough, right? And the truth is, I was never good enough, right? And I'm still not good enough. And there's always room to grow. And I wish I had learned that earlier. I wish I had known that what I was doing may have been acceptable at the time, but I needed to show and demonstrate to my team that I was actively working to get better at people management. And I think in order to scale the sooner you realize that management is is hard and it's even harder to get right to like really help your people achieve their potential, the sooner you realize that and invest into it, even if it's not your natural tendency, right? The sooner you do that, the sooner your team is going to perform at a higher level, right? And help you kind of grow and scale. So a lot of, as I'm, this is fun to chat about because as I'm drawing the introspection on these different pillars, it all kind of comes back to some kind of deep work that you do with yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. That's awesome. Very powerful um, summation, uh, Mark. And I, it makes me think that when these three come into alignment, when your internal compass and sense of what you are about and purpose, when those are aligned with some way that impacts meaningfully and truly some market, some stakeholders group, and you're able to actually engage in a way that's sustaining and producing mutual value and and grows. When those factors, when they come together, the universe quivers, I say. It's it's because because there is an abundance factor that begins in small and then at large reveal itself. So uh, thank you very much. This is a beautiful uh, and uh, special conversation. Thank you very much. For me as well, Avi. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing, you can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.